Good morning. I've decided I'm going to take Devin everywhere I go. Just send him in first, you know? I had forgotten a lot of that. It, uh, it was really hot, uh, too. They did not turn on the AC for us at all. Um, but uh, I want to thank you so much. Those are uh, awesome words, man, and some great memories. We're going to be in Psalm 16 today, so I want you to turn your Bibles straight away uh, or key them on or scroll, however you're going to get there. And I also want you to get Acts 2 on deck. We're going to spend some time kind of bouncing back and forth between them. A lot of the Psalms were written by David. And for those of you who might not be very familiar with David, he lived about 900 to 1,000 years before Christ, which makes it about 3,000 years before us. So during his life, I mean, he had a, a full resume. I'd love to see a TV show based on the life of David. Uh, it would be a mini-series. It'd last for several seasons because um, there's a ton there. He started off as a shepherd. He was a fugitive. He was a poet, a musician, a prophet, a king. I mean, he was an original Renaissance man. And the Psalms were poetic writings. They were songs uh, for worship, for God's people to come together and sing. They were the OG worship songs. You know, that's where we get our stuff, uh, is from those. Many of the Psalms were prophetic because they were authored by God through men who wrote them. And so it talked about the things that were happening in, in the immediate life of the author, as well as stuff that was going to come far into the future. And so when we say that, they have an already and a not yet part to them. So when David would write a psalm, it was literally happening to a great degree for him in real time. And it was also about usually the Messiah to come a thousand years later. And so as like the other authors of Scripture, men who the Holy Spirit spoke through, as they wrote these worship songs, it becomes a little bit hard to tell who's talking. Is it David? Is it about Jesus? Is it about both of them? I found Charles Spurgeon particularly helpful, and I've probably copyrighted him too much because I've quoted him. I don't know who I owe money to, but um, he is fantastic when you're studying the Psalms. And so he has a great quote that helped me. Often he said, we lose sight of David altogether and are certain he's not there, while at other times the words seem equally suitable either to David, the type, or to Jesus, the antitype. For Spurgeon, he could tell that it would start to blend together, and we're going to see a little bit of that as we go through Psalm 16. Second Peter 1.21 was helpful as well. So how do I understand how Scripture came to be? How do I understand that God wrote his words through men, uh, that they didn't just like roll their eyes back up into their head and start magically writing, but in fact he used them, he used all their personality and their abilities and wrote in and through them. And Peter is helpful, 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but God spoke, or rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So David was being carried along by the Spirit. He wrote down his own personal experiences again, but also of Christ. And I found myself wondering, I mean, did he know that he was doing that? You know, like did he know who he was writing about to some degree? And uh, my brother was in town, and I was talking to him about it, and he said, yes, he did know. And I was like, well, aren't you a little pretentious? And then he showed me 1 Peter 1, 
And he wasn't. He was just right. And it's 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So this is Peter talking about the salvation offered by Christ. And when he says you and yours, he's talking to the people he wrote the letter to, which are the believers and also apply to us, which was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, talking about the prophets, including David. They were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So to a degree, and I don't know how much, David knew that this was about the Messiah, his suffering, and his glories. Now, he didn't have all the revelation we had, but to some degree he understood it. In verse 12, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were serving the people hearing the message, reading the letter written by Peter, and to you sitting here today, they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And these are the things which angels long to look. So they were delivering this message to God's people. The prophets were being used, and to a degree, they knew it had something to do about the one that was coming, that he would suffer, that he would be glorified, and that people thousands and thousands of years later would read it. They knew that I'm not only doing this for myself. In a sense, David knew that Christ's followers, the believers to come, would also be benefited by this letter. Now, did he picture Jacksonville in 2022? Probably not. But I found it awesome that he thought that. So with that as kind of the pretext, that's just the intro. We get into Psalm 16. Um, and I've got the two boys that were announced. Um, and they, when they were little, you know, they cling to you. They want to be next to you. They want to hold on to you. They want to ride onto your feet when you're walking. They think that's awesome. And they start to grow up. And they think maybe they're too old or maybe you're too old as parents to be close to you in public. So they start to want to walk away from you to some degree. And, and, but let there be a loud, sudden like noise or a scary thing occur or some weird person show up. What happens? They flock right back to you and they flee to you for protection, uh, no matter how cool they think they might be. And that's where we kind of see Psalm 16 starting off in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And that word refuge there, it's, a, it's translated like I flee to you for protection. And it is a completed action with continued results. I flee to God and the blessings of doing that just continue. And the question I want to answer today with my points, why did David flee to God for protection? He had options. I mean, he didn't have other gods to go to. There's only one. But he had other things that he could run to for protection. We all do it. But in this particular psalm, I think the three reasons he fled to God for refuge were as the following. And, that, and you'll see where I'm pulling these from. David knew, number one, where his goodness came from. And so that's verses two through four. David knew from where his provision would come. And that's verses five through eight. And then lastly... David knew from where his joy would come from. And those are the last verses, 9 through 11. So you can see that. Um, that's exactly where I'm getting this information from. And that's where we want to jump in. So the first, 
David knew from where his goodness came. And we're going to start in Psalm 2 with that. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, just real quick, if you see in your Bibles, you'll see Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And then you'll say, you are my Lord, capital L, but lowercase the rest of it. And just by way of an aside, when it's capitalized like that, it's the actual name of God being reflected, like Yahweh or Jehovah. When it's lowercase o-r-d, it's translated master. And so he's saying, God, you are my master. You are my head. You are my God. And there's no good apart from you. Because David knew only God is good. And for David to say that, that flew in the face of what people believe then, and it certainly does in our current culture now. If I go out in the wilds of Jacksonville and randomly go talk to 10 people and ask them, do you think you're good? Nine out of 10 will go, yeah, I'm really good. Um, I've done it. And it happens time after time. But David knew the truth. None of us are good. There's only one who's good. And he wrote about it in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In another Psalm 107.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And if that's not enough, let's jump to Matthew 19.17. And he said to them, why do you ask me what is good? This is Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. There's only one who is good. And if you enter life, keep the commandments. And so David is saying only God is good. And he is not good. In fact, David knew that God isn't good because he just fits the definition. Good is what God is. He defines the word. The word good is what God's nature is. And we wouldn't have a clue what's good and what's bad without God's nature defining it for us. Now, we could guess, and, and our culture does this, all the time. This is good, this is bad, and it's just random. It's not objective. It's up to the person. But God defines what good is. And in contrast, David knew that only God was good because he knew his own heart and he knew that he wasn't good. If we jump to Psalm 51, we're just going to touch on a few verses there. Have mercy on me, says David. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then if we jump down to verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's like, not only am I not good, I haven't been good since conception. Like, my badness goes back a long way. And he says that because by nature, because of the sinful world that we live in, we're born infected by sin. And at the quickest time that we're able to sin, we do it. And if you doubt that, go watch our kids next door, uh, starting the young ones, and you'll see it real quick. Uh, you say no, and they're like, no, and it's, it's going down. It happens early. You know you're in it. In verses 3 and 4, David's going to give us evidence of God's goodness, and I think he does it in a pretty neat way. Verse 3 is, for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's the positive case that he's offering for the believers, for the ones that God plugs into. His goodness makes them good. It's like a virus 
although I feel weird saying that word, it infects them and it spreads throughout them. God is so good that he makes them good. And David wants to be around them. He delights in God's people. Now, you might be thinking like, well, maybe he didn't have a congregation of people like we have today. Are they delightful, Nate, you know? Uh, Yes, he had the same group of weirdos around him that you have around you and that you're a part of. And he delighted in them. Now, did he delight in them because they were overly delightful? Probably not. I mean, at times, I'm sure they were like we are. But they weren't delightful people because they were wonderful people. They were delightful people because God delighted in them. And because God delighted in them, he gradually made them delightful. It was helpful for me to look in the NASB. It's majestic instead of excellent. In CSB, noble. I like that one too. But because of what God does to his people, that makes them delightful. Are they perfect? No, like any family, we're going to rub each other the wrong way. But do we delight to see each other because God delights in us? If I don't want to see you and you're one of God's people, that's a problem because God delights in you. Why don't I? And it's the gospel that I love that you come to this church and hear so much about the gospel before anybody gets up to preach. I mean, these worship people, all they do is talk about the gospel and sing about the gospel. And we want you to keep hearing about the gospel. It's the gospel that makes God's people different. It's the life of Jesus that he lived without sin. It's his going to the cross and taking the hell for all of the people who would ever believe in him and repent of their sins, past, present, and future. It's his death and resurrection from the dead that causes God's people to become delightful, to become like Christ. Now, we can tell that God's people are a delight to him. And how do we tell that? We look at the cross. And when we behold the cross of Christ, we see how delightful God's people are to him. Why would he do that for us if he didn't delight in us? So when he looks at us, he sees his son. He sees the excellencies of Christ. He sees the delight that his own son brings him. He sees that in us. He sees that in you, believer. When he looks at you, he sees past your sin. He sees past your struggles. He sees his son in and through you, and he delights in you. And because we are an object of God's delight, and we are becoming more like Christ, he's wired us to need each other. Christianity is not a lone wolf sport. Um, We're a team sport, a big team sport. And we're the mission way branch of the team, you know. We've got the body of Christ, which is all the believers all over the globe. And then we have our local congregation that God gives us to plug into. Like, I miss you when you're not here. I need you to be here. I need to be here. We need to lift each other up and encourage each other. And when I look out and I see you here, I'm so encouraged. What God has done, he's brought you here today. You could have been other places. We have been other places. Most of us didn't want to come here but we came. Some of us had kids on the way here. We were like, this is a bad idea. We should turn around. But we still came. Why is that? Well, in Hebrews 10, 22 to 25, we get an idea as to why. These are commands of God to his people. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more you see the day drawing near. We can't obey God's commandments about meeting together if we're not doing it physically, in person. Now, I've heard some folks go, well, maybe he didn't know about the internet. And so that's why he said in person. Of course he knew about the internet. He's the almighty God of heaven and earth. He knows all things. And he knew the internet was going to be a thing before we did. He knew about the Snapchat and the MyFace and the TikTok and the whole deal. But he still said meet together in person. I, don't, I know I didn't get half of those right. That's fine. It is okay. I got close. I feel like it would turn around in a crowd if I yelled it out. TikTok, that was us. He wants us to meet together. He wants us to live each other up. He wants us to encourage each other, especially when the day draws near. That's the day of Christ's return. We can't do that if we're not in person. And he's not only talking about coffee and meeting in small groups. Those things are great. But he's talking about meeting together as the body of Christ on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day singing together, worshiping together, hearing his word preached. So help us to do that as a, a, a primary concern. Help us to want to do that more than anything else. Because we'll get together with other people and we'll worship other things, but it won't bless us like being together. And now I know there are some of us believers who are physically bound to our houses and we're not able to go. Some of us know folks that struggle with various issues that would have that be an end result. And for that, as the church, it's our job to go to them so that we can be together. That's the positive case. Now he gives a negative case in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So in contrast to the believers... He shows us the idolaters, those who run toward other gods. Not that there are any, but they're running away from the true God. Just like it says in verse 1, David fled to God, he ran to God. They run away from God to something else. And so this is a withdrawal of God's goodness. God is so good that if he removes his goodness, this happens. The sorrows of those who run after other gods multiply. There's nothing in their life that is good when he withdraws his goodness from them. There's only sorrow. There's only misery. Now, for a time, it can seem like it's going pretty good for them. But without the goodness of God, there's just rot and decay and suffering. And some of us as believers have experienced that because at times we'll run after other gods, won't we? We won't run to God for safety. We'll run away from him. But in this particular case, these folks constantly run away from him toward other gods. They did not delight in God or his gifts, and so David didn't want anything to do with them. He was not going to participate in their offerings. He was not going to participate especially in the blood offering, which, if you look that up, it's pretty nasty. They would drink the blood of animals and sometimes even people. I'm with David. I am not going to take part in the blood offerings. But for us... That also means I'm not going to participate in the things that God hates. I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to support it. 
In the times when we act like these idolaters, these unbelievers, what are we proclaiming to the whole world around us? We're shouting out, essentially, God is not good. He's not good. I have to go someplace else for whatever it is I'm looking after. David knew that believers could suffer because he did suffer because of his sin. And as David knew that his goodness came from God alone, that withdrawing that goodness would only lead to suffering, he also knew where his provision came. And that brings us to point number two. This is going to be our little longer point. David knew from when his provision came. And that's the second reason, I think, from this psalm that he ran to God for safety. Now, David knew that God would provide for him, and I think it's three different ways, maybe four. I just did three. The first was he provides in this life and the next. The second is he provides ongoing counsel. And the third was that he provides his presence. And so let's read verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. My lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and indeed I have a beautiful inheritance. Now this is spoken in present tense. And so that keys us into the fact that David believes it's a reality now, and it will continue to be one. God alone was David's constant provision. And David would know he lost men in battle. He lost goods. He lost his land. He lost fame. He lost fortune. He even lost his kingdom for a little bit. Had to get it back. If you ever want a great read, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, it is incredible. But he never lost God. And he talks about chosen portion and lots. And so historically that meant they would have a land that was promised to them, they'd divide it up on a map, and they'd cast lots to see who was going to be in what portion of the land. And lots were kind of like dice. Uh, it would just tell them where they were going. And so he uses that to, to give us a word picture of, in this life, I had all the provision I needed. All the provision I needed, I had. It fell for me in pleasant places. God was my chosen portion. In my cup, he held my lot. David's inheritance was not dirt itself. It wasn't the land, but the God who made the dirt and men from it. He knew that about God. Now, David, again, experienced suffering, says our inheritance is Jesus and we are his. He knew that his inheritance, his ultimate possession was Christ. It was the Messiah to come. It was going to be in the very presence of God. Now David also used uh, a cup to symbolize uh, judgment and reward historically, but in this particular psalm, he used it to, to talk about reward. When he talks about his cup, he's my portion and my cup. And what helps us is Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And so he's talking about a cup of God's blessing. The cup of, uh, of overflowing blessing. And he always used like a dinner setting sometimes to describe this, which helps me. You know, life is good. It's like a big meal and a cup that's never empty. And I've been in restaurants where the cup was woefully empty. And no one's coming to fill it. And I'm giving all the signs. I'm shaking the glass. I'm on the straw, making the noise. I'm trying to catch the eyes. And you start to get very thirsty. Your cup is not overflowing in that moment. And so I love that analogy because 
I was thirsty for that cup to be filled. We're never going to be thirsty. When we're with Christ, we're never going to want for anything. Look down, the cup is filled. I drink it, the cup stays filled. It's overflowing. It's making a mess on the table. That's how much I have in the cup. Charles Spurgeon, again, was very helpful. He is our portion, talking about God, supplying all of our necessities, our cup yielding royal luxuries, our cup in this life and our inheritance in the life to come. I wish I could write one thing like Charles Spurgeon in my whole life, a cup of royal luxuries. He said again in another quote, As children of the Father who is in heaven, we inherit by virtue of joint heirship with Jesus all the riches of the covenant grace and the portion which falls to us, sets upon our table the bread of heaven, the new wine of the kingdom. Who would not be satisfied with such dainty diet? Dainty, he meant elegant. Our shallow cup of sorrow we may well drain with resignation since the deep cup of love stands side by side with it and will never be empty. That was very helpful for me to, to hear and to see and to read. Because many of us here know how to suffer. We have suffered. We've been through a lot, whether it be physical suffering, whether it be grief. This life brings suffering. David knew how it was to suffer. He went through a tremendous amount. Some his fault, some not. David's encouragement in this psalm is to turn our eyes away from our suffering to Christ. Turn it away from the little cup of suffering to that massive cup on the table of God's blessing in this life and the life to come. Focus on Christ and how he drank, again, the cup of God's wrath that should have been due me, that should have been poured out on me for all of eternity in hell because of my sin. Jesus drained it. See how much that you mean to him that he would do that for you. And so now in our heads, we're at the table, we have this little cup of suffering, whatever it is we're going through in this life, and sometimes we get on it like a laser beam, just focused. We just got to pick our gaze up and turn toward the beautiful cup of God's blessing, his son, and just see it in comparison to this little thing. Now, am I saying that your sufferings aren't significant? Of course not. I'm saying that focusing on Christ is going to help you in and through your suffering. As we saw in Psalm 23, it's actually Christ who serves you at this table. He's serving you through and in the gospel, through and in his act of love for you. There's going to come a day, which I can't wait for, when the suffering's over and the sin is done. I won't even want to sin in heaven. I won't even have the urge to fight against. And we will be with our great inheritance, Christ. That brings us to verse 7. The second reason that David knew that God would provide is that he gives him counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, how did David get counsel? Well, we talked about a few. He got counsel from the delightful saints that he was around. He had counsel from the Spirit of God who was in him, who empowered him, who led him, and ultimately led him to write the Word of God. And that is actually our greatest source of counsel, is the Word of God. God's words are wonderful. David wrote, Psalm 119, all about the words of God. I'll let you read it. It's 176 verses. I thought we wouldn't quote that here. We'll just do two verses. 
Psalm 119, 15, and 16. I will meditate on your precepts. That's your word. I will fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And so I'm reading this. I'm going, do we treat God's word as one of his great provisions to us? And do we spend the time to read it? When's the last time that we read his great provision? Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now in 7, what does he mean that in the night my heart instructs me? I had to go look that up. And it wasn't initially helpful because the initial... Translation was kidneys or bowels. I'm like, well, that didn't help. But they would use that to signify your innermost self, your innermost being, you know, your, your bowels, your kidneys, your heart. The NASB was helpful, your mind. And so basically, once your heart is transformed and you're in God's word, if you focus on God's word, God's word is what comes out of you when you're up late at night trying to wrestle through various problems. Because David focused so much on God's word, he was rightly instructed in the night by God's word. And that's how we also are instructed. Now God promises this heart change in Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put in you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. He gives us a new heart. He sprinkles us with water, makes us clean, and he causes us to walk in his ways. And so one of the questions I constantly have to ask myself and everyone is, do you have a changed heart? Has he made you new? So we had provision by God's counsel, right? He had provision also by the stuff he was going to get Provision in this life and the next, when he talked about his inheritance, that was the eternal provision. When he talked about lines and lots, cups, he was talking about earthly provision as well as heavenly provision. The third thing is that he provided for David and all believers with his very presence. This is something that God promises us through Scripture. Now when we read that always, which is in verse 8, I have set the Lord before me always because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. When we see always, we begin to go, is this about David? Did he always do this? Well, if he's like me, he didn't always do it. Was David lying and just trying to brag about himself? Well, no. No, he was, at this time, we start to notice that the psalm is not just about David. It's pointing us to something greater. And now it's when we're going to turn to Acts 2 so that I can show you how I know this. Go ahead and turn to Acts 2. 23 through 25 is where we're going to start. And just keep your thumb there. We're going to go back and forth. It's going to be great. Now a quick thing about the New Testament when it quotes the Old Testament. It's like we're getting an explanation of what the Old Testament meant. And so we want to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. When the Testament quotes the Old Testament and then provides for us an explanation. Okay? And so in Acts 2, it's Peter preaching at Pentecost. And he is preaching on Psalm 16. And he is telling us what it means. 
So if we read in Acts 2, 23, 24, and 25, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death. It was not possible for him to be held by it, for David says concerning him. So he tells us, it's about Jesus. Here's what David said. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. We just read that. Who was he talking about that always put the Lord before him? He was putting pen to parchment. He was being poetic, David was. He was making this worship song about his own experiences, and he was pointing us to the one true beautiful Messiah who would always put the Lord before him and always be with us. Jesus. And we know from Matthew, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we know that upon being saved, God is always with us. In John 14, 32, we read, Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So even in the face of all the things that we face on earth, we have Christ in us. We have God with us. So will I always put him before me? No, but by giving me his son, he has always put himself before me. Just like Christ always put his father before him. And that last bit, I will not be shaken. David was shaken a lot, but Christ wasn't shaken. He pointed us toward Christ. Even in the face of torture, even in the face of humiliation and the endurance of eternal hell due for every one of his people, Christ was not shaken. He was not moved. He was resolute because he knew we could not and we would not be. He knew that we would falter and fail, and he never did. Our salvation is completely of him. He saves us. Our sanctification is completely of him. He works in and through us to make us holy. And our glorification will be entirely of him. Once I get to heaven, I am made perfect. And so what about our works? Can we just give those up and not have to worry about doing good works because Jesus is doing it all? Absolutely not. We just read that in John 14, 32. If you love me, you'll keep my word. You'll walk in our commands. And so, because I'm a believer with a new heart, now I have a desire to do good things. I still wrestle with sinful flesh, and so there's a battle that takes place. But he promises me that I'll become more and more like him. So David knew where his provision came from, that he would be provided for on this life and in the next. He knew that his provision would also be the counsel of God through his word primarily, but also by his people and his spirit. And he knew that God would provide his very presence. Now, David knew and wrote of Christ, and because all of this, we get to verses 9 through 11, and it's here that we come to our last point. So we are, we're reaching the end. Let's read verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. And so what is the therefore, therefore? It points us back to all the other verses. So in light of all the other verses, what can we conclude? It says it right there, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Because of all the things David says that I just talked about, I rejoice. I rejoice in what he's done. I rejoice in the goodness of God. I rejoice in the provision of God. He celebrated God with his whole heart and his whole soul. He celebrated him with his mouth. He wrote a song about it, and he sang the song in a worship service. He realized that his flesh was being watched over in this life by God, and that God would 
not only watch over his physical frame, but his eternal one forever. In verse 10, what was the reason of the celebration? For or because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, Sheol, just real quick, commonly understood as a holding place for the dead before Christ came. And so if I died as a believer, holding place. If I died as an unbeliever, a more different holding place, but in the same area. When Jesus came back, upon his dying and resurrecting, he went to the holding place and he separated out the good and brought them with him. And he will return to the holding place at the end of all the things, and he'll send all the unbelievers to their final holding place, which is the place we're very thankful we're not going, by God's grace. And so David's saying, I know that you will not abandon me to death and to hell and to suffering, and you won't let me see corruption. Now, what did he mean there? Would David's body see corruption? Yes, his body is still dead, but his spirit is with Christ. And again, that points us to Acts 2. It's going to give us some clarity, verses 26 and 27. We see the same things that we just read. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope or dwell secure. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And so we know that David didn't rejoice always. We know that his body did see corruption. And so we also know that this is no longer about David, it's about Christ. Because Christ's body didn't see corruption. Christ's body was raised from the dead. And we read that in 29 through 32 of Acts 2. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried. His tomb is with us today. But because of being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not abandon to Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus he raised up, and we are all witnesses. So again, he's pointing us toward Christ. He's pointing us to the fact that Jesus' body, although buried in a tomb, instantly came out three days later, did not see corruption, but was fully resurrected bodily. Peter and David Conclude on verse 11 for this particular psalm. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. And again, in, in verse 28, Peter again says that same verse in his exposition of Psalm 16. So in my mind, I start to picture David wrote the song, and he sang the song with God's people in the worship service. Peter sang that song in the worship service with God's people, Psalm 16. Jesus sang that psalm in a worship service with God's people. And that starts to blow my mind. All three of them sang the song to proclaim the joy uh, to their father. All three of them praised God for the path of life, which is how they're supposed to live on this earth given to them by the scriptures. Now, David and Peter, when they're singing it, sings it like we would. It's a promise that we'll be resurrected from the dead one day, that we'll have a full resurrection of our physical body made perfect, and that our spirit goes instantly upon death to be with Christ. When Jesus was singing this psalm, a little different. He proclaimed while he was singing this that he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. 
Now, as they sang through that psalm and got to verse 11, Jesus knew the absolute joy that came from being in the very presence of the Father. He knew all the pleasures of being on the right hand of the Father. And it blows my mind to see him singing that. But for us, and for David, and for Peter, when it says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, who is at the right hand of God? The Father. Jesus, that's the right answer 99% of the time in church and in Bible studies. That's free for you. Jesus is there. He is the pleasures that we'll experience forevermore. He's the joy, the fullness of joy, the exceeding amount of joy, the overflowing cup. He is the thing that we inherit that is at the right hand of God the Father. But sadly, we don't go to God the Father. We don't go to his Son by the power of his Spirit in times of trouble or in any times. Sometimes we sadly go after other gods like the people did in Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out or dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We have fled to other gods for protection, for pleasure and provision. We have denied the fountain of living waters and tried to dig out our own dirty cisterns that hold no water. When my kids were younger, they would wait till I was out of the house because I'm a neat freak, and they would transform my living room into a fort uh, made out of couch cushions and sheets and blankets and, and stuffed animals. Running to other gods for protection, for example, would be like in the middle of a Cat 5 hurricane, me diving into that fort and thinking I'm going to be safe. That thing, if you sneezed, came down. It was not built soundly. Who have you been running to, brothers and sisters, instead of Christ? Has it been entertainment, work, unlawful pleasures, alcohol or drugs? Perhaps it's even been your good works. Uh, we've tooted our own horn and we took refuge and comfort by how many times we've come to church or read our Bible. These are pitiful gods. I've done that. It's only suffering that multiplies when we do. Instead, let's flee to God. He's our refuge and our strength. Let's repent of our sin. Let our faith grow when we consider Christ. When we covet or steal, we're declaring because we're God's image in creation. We're declaring that God is not good enough and that he's not providing for us. When we ignore his words and his works, his people, as his people, we proclaim that his counsel is not good enough. When we don't read his Bible, we're telling everybody he doesn't give us counsel. When we surround ourselves with unbelievers and wickedness, we proclaim that his presence isn't good enough. When we rejoice in the sin that unbelievers rejoice in, we proclaim that God's son is not good enough. So I pray that we do repent and we turn from those things that cause us suffering. We turn from our sin, we believe more deeply in Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We challenge ourselves. If I can keep committing the same sin without repentance, I need to check my heart. Am I saved? Do not let your true joy pass you today, but cling to him. You don't understand the hope that Christ brings to the table. The Bible promises that any sin that I've ever committed is not weightier or more powerful than Christ's ability to save me. And if you're out there thinking, I have committed such sins that it's not possible for him to come get me, this book says you're wrong. 
I know myself, and I know people personally who have told you to your face, I'm in such a pit of sin, there's no way out for me, and God has plucked them out. If you've never known Christ today, but God is working in your heart, as you've heard his word preached to you, turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in Christ right now at your own seat. Be saved. Know him to be your complete joy. Know him to be your full provision and your source of goodness. And if you do that, talk to one of the elders here today. Now, brothers and sisters, my delight, we get to sing Psalm 16 together. We get to sing with David and Peter and Christ about the wonders that we have in Christ. So let's sing together after I pray and just lift our voices up with him. Father, come before you in the name of your son. Oh, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the song that we get to sing together. We thank you for your goodness, for your provision, and for the joy we have in you. I pray that this has encouraged your saints. And I pray that it has saved anyone who doesn't know you. So let us continue to worship, Lord. Help us to sing to you as you deserve. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.